Welcome back uh, to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Bubba, it's hard to believe this is actually episode seven when you and I, we decided we will step out into the world of the podcast and we've already done six and today is number seven. You know, seven's a lucky number, Rick, and I think we're very excited and lucky to have on today Professor Walter E. Williams. If you're new to the program or you are unaware of Professor Williams, he is a professor of economics at George Mason University, commentator, uh, also a syndicated columnist. He also received the 2017 Bradley Prize. And you know why he got that prize, Bubba? Why is that? Because he's an advocate for the free market, baby, and we love that about him. Welcome back to now the Rick and Bubba podcast, Professor Williams. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. Well, we're excited about having you on. Thank you for making time to be with us. And uh, this is kind of a crazy time in our country and our economy. And I can't think of a better person to have than you on to help shed some light and clarification on a very confused country right now. Okay, I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you're still here. I mean, because we need you right now. So let's talk a little bit. Bubba has a question we're going to kind of lead with. Because we, we, we seem to need seem it seems that we are not educating uh, the American people on economics uh, or the free market, and we'll get to later. Certainly, there's a lack of education on socialism and communism. I'm shocked at some of the uh, the level of embracement of those two failed forms of government. But let's start off with President Trump. And, and Bub, I know you had a question. You well, want to ask. Uh, Professor Williams, the U.S. economy and the world economy is very complicated. A lot of moving parts, and no one completely understands it. That's that's why it's always moving and changing. But under the Trump administration, we've had some historically good numbers as far as economic numbers. And my question to you is, why is that? What are what what? Is President Trump and his administration doing different that other presidents haven't done, or is it just kind of the the cyclical nature of the economy that we're on an upturn, or and and tie that into can we sustain this type of growth? Well, I, I think that there 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 are several phenomena. One is the uh, are the uh, the tax cuts that uh, the president pushed through uh, Congress. Uh, lowering the uh, corporate uh, income tax and and our corporation taxes are the highest and where the I think second highest in the world coming behind uh, Japan and I think that when you when you lower taxes you always you always get more of something I mean the general economic rule is is that if you subsidize something you're going to get surpluses and if you tax something you're going to do away with it and so what we've been doing, we, we just uh, lowered uh, some of the corporate taxes. And then maybe just as important, or even more importantly, is that the, the president has engaged in, uh, in activities that deregulate uh, many sect- sectors of our economies, uh, of our economy. And that, that, that just kind of uh, gives the American people incentive to produce more. And uh, and uh, it it removes some government control over uh, economic activity, and then you, if you look at the um, at the labor markets in our country, uh, the labor markets have been fabulous. Uh, the unemployment rate is relatively low, and the uh, unemployment rate for various sec- sectors of our economy, or for de- uh, various demographic groups, uh, the unemployment is un- um, at the unprecedentedly uh, low levels, uh, such as blacks and Hispanics and uh, and women. 
So, so I think that in general, the, in, the, in terms of domestic uh, economy, the president has uh, provided a lot of leadership. Uh, the, if we wanted to criticize the president, by one, one criticism of the president, uh, his program, it, that would have to be on tariffs. Uh, tariffs have been uh, known to be devastating to a, an economy. And if we don't get rid of the, uh, the tariffs, the oppressive tariffs on foreign uh, goods uh, soon, uh, then we're going to be in trouble. So well, the tariffs you would disagree with, I mean, you're very clear on that, and, and, and tell us again why. Well, well what, what tariffs do is that they are an, a tax on the American people. That is, for example, if, if they say, well, look, uh, we're going to put a 25% tariff on Japanese or Chinese or whoever steel, well, what that does, that raises the cost of steel to American consumers of steel. Now, of course, there's no question that is keeping up foreign steel uh, benefits the U.S. steel industry. That is, they get higher profits and the workers get higher wages. But then we have to ask the question, well, what, what about all the industries that use steel, such as John Deere and, and automobile companies? Well, it raises their cost of production. And so they, it makes them less competitive uh, in international markets. And, and you know, what, what, what the president is, in a sense, saying, and whoever and anybody who supports tariffs say, is that, look, if China screws its citizens by restricting their freedom to trade freely with other nations around the world, then we should retaliate by screwing American citizens. Mm. <laughs> well said. Well, well, I mean, you, you, yeah, that, I understand what yeah, you're saying. Nah, I follow that. I do. So let me ask you this, Professor Williams. Um, the the tariffs, and I, I haven't heard it really explained, and I, I'm, I'm sure you have a much better grasp of this than even the ones who would try. When President Trump says that they're taking advantage of us and our trade deal for us tariffs with China is unfair, in other words, the position before all this started, what is he talking about exactly? Do you do you know what our trade deal is with China, and why did he think it was so unfair to begin with? Well, I, I think what he's what he's saying is that uh, China has been able to imp, to export many many goods to the United States. That is, uh, labor costs in, uh, uh, in China are lower than labor costs in the United States, and there's far less regulation in China than in the United States, uh, such as EPA regulation. And so what American firms have done, many American firms, they have gone to China to set up operations because it's cheaper in China. Uh, and also uh, the Chinese have uh, sold goods to the United States that, uh, that uh, are at lower prices than American-made goods. And so, so what, what, what the president is saying is that, well, uh, many of our businesses have been harmed by uh, uh, by activities of China, but however, consumers have been helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's for you know, for example, just one minor example, is that the Canadians uh, put have historically put very very high tariffs on American dem- uh, uh, American dairy products, right. causing Canadians to have to pay higher prices for cheese and and other dairy products. So. What would you do if you were president? You say, well, look, uh, um, uh, Canada screws its citizens <laughs> by forcing them to pay higher prices. 
we should get even with Canada by putting tariffs on Canadian lumber, thereby screwing American home builders. So, so really, when I when I hear this, and you you said the things that are good about what this administration has done, and that again is dealing with some of the uh, government uh, oversteps, and and by giving people more of their money through to lower taxes, and what we did with the corporate tax rate, obviously was long overdue. But again, there's a swing back on the tariffs. You're you are clearly a free market person, and what I'm hearing from you. When you say free market, you mean a world free market, not just our country. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely right. And, and then, you know, when, when people talk about, well, you know, um, Japanese uh, they, or Chinese or Canadians have, have tariffs, therefore we should have tariffs, that's very much like uh, me and, and Rick and Bubba, we're in a boat at, at sea. We're in a rowboat. And I shoot a hole in my end of the boat. What should you guys do? <laughs> I'm not shooting one in my end. <laughs> well, we're all going down either way. Just how fast I'm gonna start we're trying going to down. cover yours up. I <laughs> get some of that tape they show on TV. You make a boat out of. And <laughs> That's right. And so, so what we, what we, you know, and I think that Americans have far greater flexibility on international trade. That is, we are a huge country, and we have a huge domestic market. And so we can be, we can, t- t- we, we can afford to tell the whole world, look, uh, you can screw your citizens, but we're not going to screw ours. We're going to let anything come in the United States. All goods come in the United States. And see, let's say a country like Japan or, or, or Hong Kong or other, uh, Singapore, they're relatively small countries, and they depend on international trade. They, they, their dependence on international trade is much greater than ours. So we have such a robust, a rich economy that we can afford to tell the rest of the world, look, we're going to have free trade in our country, and you do what you, you do whatever you want to your citizens. So let me be sure I've got this right. If you were advising the president and it was going to be your call, you would say do away with all tariffs on incoming products and let the market fall where it may. That's right. Absolutely right. Well, and, and because you're looking at maximum liberty, and you know, yeah. you're, you know, when I look at the things that you love, you sound an awful lot like one of like our founding fathers, <laughs> and, uh, and, and and that was the, that's the, a little outdated now, Rick. They Come believed on. personal liberty, so you can maximize your personal potential. Uh, they were for complete limited government. The government was assigned very few things. The rest were left up to the states and to the individuals. And of course, you have said something that here we are in our country, you know, we're, we're more obsessed with race right now than we've been in decades since the civil rights movement. And a lot of that, you know, strangely seemed to start under the first ever African-American first family uh, that, that kind of took us, in my opinion, backward on where we were on race. But, but you've said many times the beautiful thing about maximum liberty and about the free market is it has no idea of your ethnicity. Oh, that's absolutely right. That is, uh, uh, when when you go when you go buy a car, well, well, you you don't care about who 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 made the car, who was hired to make the car. All you care about is whether the car runs right. Right, Professor Williams. Uh, we had a story out. I, I think it was this week or late last week that the middle class America, because of uh, the the tax cuts. And one thing and another, they they actually saw five thousand dollars more come into the house this year than in previous years. As a matter of fact, I think it was the highest gain in like fifty years. Um, 
that I mean that's major, and it was across a lot of different demographic and uh, economic lines. Uh, that should be a good thing. I mean, shouldn't people be extremely happy with that? Oh, yeah. oh yes. And, and, and matter of fact, uh, I haven't seen this, the study, but I've heard reports about the five thousand uh, dollar gain, and that may actually understate the true gains because uh, a lot of times uh, people get uh, non money. Uh, uh, wages. That is, they have uh, 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 um, KEO plans or they have uh, uh, health insurance from their job and they have other kinds of uh, non-money benefits. So that figure uh, that they're talking about is $5,000. I think it just represents the money benefits. It does not include the non-money benefits uh, <clears throat> that accrued during the Trump administration. And, uh, and that may be higher. I just don't have any idea because uh, I hadn't looked at the study at all. Professor Williams, with, with that being said, it, why can't we see this picture outside of Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal? Why, why do, I mean, there's plenty we can argue about, but why doesn't every president that goes in see this and go, we need to follow this model of less government involved so the economy can grow as opposed to, and we have candidates running now on the Democratic side that would carry us uh, to the to the footstep of communism if they had their way. Unbelievable. And why why does anybody in their right mind ever support that kind of idea? Well, I, I think that um, uh, uh, people, many people, want a free lunch. That is, they want something for nothing. And if politicians, whether they're on the Republicans or whether they're Democrats, uh, can, they can get away with promising people uh, something for nothing. That is essentially what a politician, he tries to get, vote, get votes by promising his constituents that he is going to do things that will allow one person to live at the expense of another person. That is, a politician who says, well, look, I'm, I'm going to provide, uh, I'm going to create free education. That is, no tuition uh, for going to colleges. Well, where is he going to get the resources uh, to do that? Well, there's no tooth, claw, tooth fairy or Santa Claus that's going to give him the resources. And so, the, so when you recognize that Congress has no resources of its very own, that forces you to recognize that the only way Congress can give one American citizen $1 is to first, through intimidation, threats, and coercion, confiscate that dollar from some other American. And, and if you look at... The, the, the major moral problem in our country that nobody pays any attention to, the big problem is, is that we, the American people, we have accepted the notion that Congress has the right to forcibly use one American to serve the purposes of another American, whether it be taking your money and my money and give it to farmers for crop subsidies or, or your money and my money to give to businesses or to give to college students. The, you know, that's, that's forcibly using one person to serve the purpose of another, and the forcible use of one person to serve the purpose of another is a fairly good working definition of slavery. It really is, and, and that is not the design of this country. And, and no, it is not. And it's subtly slipping away. We really are moving because we're letting the central government get bigger and bigger. And sadly, even people who call themselves conservatives are still desiring for the government to be much larger than the founding fathers would have ever tolerated. That's right. And, and consider, you know, James Madison, 
is the acknowledged father of the United States Constitution. And in 1794, Congress appropriated $15,000 to help some French refugees. James Madison stood on the floor of the House irate, and he said, and I'm virtually quoting him, he says, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that article in the Constitution that authorizes Congress to spend the money of their constituents for the purposes of benevolence. And if you look at the federal budget today, two-thirds to three-quarters of it is spent for the purposes of benevolence. And, and that was never the design. Yeah. And, that and, was never the design. And you really kind of lead me into the next area I wanted to talk about. While we are having this prosperity, and I even saw one report today that looked like our money coming into the Treasury was going to hit an all-time high, even though we had tax cuts, we also have a debt now that is an all-time high. How is that going to play into this, uh, Professor Williams? And is it something we should be concerned about, or is it just something we're going to have to work around? Well, I, I, th- I, think, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that the debt will not be paid off. There's no way in the world that the uh, federal government can pay off uh, over $22 trillion, I think it is, of uh, national debt. And so when, when governments uh, accumulate that kind of debt, they normally repudiate the debt. And one way of repudiating, repudiating the debt is to print money and cause inflation. Now, I'm not saying that there, it's going to happen next year, the following year, or whenever, but it's ultimately the government is going to repudiate the debt. And then on also, just as importantly, maybe even more importantly, is the unfunded liability of the federal government. Mm-hmm. That is, depending on whose estimates you look at, the unfunded liability of many fe- uh, federal programs runs anywhere between $100 trillion and $200 trillion. And when I say unfunded liability, I mean the promises that, the, that Congress has made to pay, let's say, Social Security, uh, railroad retirement bonds, uh, and other promises uh, they come up to well over a hundred trillion dollars, and so that's a major problem that that that's uh, n- not talked about very much at all. Well, nobody wants to tackle it because <laughs> it, it's a very it would be a very difficult topic to solve, and nobody wants to deal with that. They just leave it for somebody else. Well, right, and, and that and 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 it, and it makes sense from a, po- a politician. That is, Social Security is quite a mess today and it's going to collapse in 2030, 2035, something like this. Now, why should a politician uh, do anything today to prevent that collapse in the future? Because if he did did anything today, he'd find people over 65 who vote in very large numbers, they'd be coming after him politically. And so it makes sense. He says, look, the people who are over 65 – in 2030, 2040, they'll be dead. The politician will be dead. So why sacrifice his career right. worrying about some people and what's going to happen in 2040? Other than the fact that it's an immoral way to <laughs> see the world, but 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 we've kind of that bridge has has kind of been crossed as well. There was a time when when people actually said there's moral obligations to certain things, and we see that drifting away. But but you're right, and I guess that goes back to one of the questions we've asked many times. So really the motivation for most politicians, because we all see some of this as what we now call a superpower in a logical, common-sense way, they're not addressing it, and it can really be for no other reason than, as you just mentioned, I want political power in my time, and I won't do anything to mess up my time, 
and my political power, even if it benefits other people, why I have to struggle. That is absolutely right, and that's a sad thing. And the point is, is that any congressman, he's not care. He doesn't care about 2040. He's looking at two years away. The, his election, his re-election. Professor, also when we talk debt, I hear people say, "Well, if we owe China that, just don't pay them. Just tell them tough luck. We're not paying them back." But when I look at the numbers, I only see about 28 percent of our national debt as foreign investors. It looks to me like, and, and you correct me on this because I, I'm trying to understand the bigger picture, it looks like a lot of our national debt we have borrowed from ourselves. which if I'm not mistaken, uh, Bernie Madoff went to prison and a lot <laughs> of other people have for running a Ponzi scheme. It looks like the federal government, to me, is running a double-blind Ponzi scheme on the U.S. taxpayer. Yeah, it, it just happens to be legal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, Bernie Madoff was illegal. Right, <laughs> and the and the government's uh, Ponzi scheme is legal, and that is, uh, you know, if if there, for example, if any retirement program had any characteristic of Social Security, the board of directors would be put in jail mm-hmm. if not shot. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that latter might might cure a lot of it, you know. Well, so so we look now, and we can't believe it. We really can't. And and you know, this is Rick and Bubba University, you know, which is the, the podcast. And uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Williams, uh, professor of economics, George Mason University. So there's people that are dialing in, and they're finding this podcast, and hopefully they're going to listen. We are living in a time. I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime where we have a generation of people that truly believe that socialism and some communism truly would be a better system than what we have in our constitutional republic and, of course, capitalism. Can you please, just right now, be a professor and please talk to these people because I don't think they know what they're embracing. That, that's right, and they're, they've been indoctrinated by their... Uh, by their uh, K through 12 uh, teachers and their and their college professors. Now, one way of looking at this is just say, look, do the following experiment: rank countries around the world according to whether they're towards the capitalistic end of the economic spectrum or the socialist and communist end of the political spectrum. Then rank countries according to per capita income of its citizens. Then, following finally rank countries according to their standard on international amnesties or freedom houses uh, uh, indexes of uh, human rights protections, you will notice something very interesting. That is, the countries towards the capitalist end of the economic spectrum, its citizens have higher income, have longer life expectancy, uh, and they have greater freedoms. The country on countries towards the socialist end of the economic spectrum, its citizens are the poorest and have the, uh, in the poorest in oral, and they have the uh, uh, lowest standards of uh, human rights protections. There's, it, there's just no dispute with that figure whatsoever. And, and then, moreover, a whole lot of people who are socialists and Bernie Maddock, uh, Bernie, um, Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders fan friends, they say, well, look at Sweden and Denmark. Well, if you look at some <laughs> statements by the by the prime minister of Denmark uh, or the uh, the prime minister of Sweden, uh, they will say just quite recently they say we're not a socialist country, and so uh, and and matter of fact, 
the America socialists would not like uh, many of the programs in Sweden. For example, Sweden does not have a minimum wage. Uh, mm. Sweden has has a, uh, um, uh, a free choice with regard to school. They have a tuition tax credit or a voucher system for public education, and they have very limited regulation of their economy. Now, they have a huge welfare state, right. but again, they point out that we are not a socialist country. Well, which is why they're not in the shape you talked about it, because I think the, one, the most misunderstood thing by a lot of young people, and sadly people who are too old to, to still be this uninformed, they truly say and they seem to believe that socialism is truly from a place of taking care of people. And, and it's just the opposite. You just mentioned, you know, some of the irrefutable facts. Well, well, the, the, well, the point is, is that, well, the, one of the problems is that socialism uh, is, is a utopia. And any utopia compared with capitalism is going to look very, very good. But, but however, uh, in terms of what actually exists here on Earth, there's no utopia and, and <laughs> capitalism uh, is the best. And if you look at these communist and socialist countries, such as Russia, uh, China, and, and, um, and, and Cubans, all these other co- socialist countries, they have a very, very bad reputation on individual freedoms. What your listeners can do is to check out a book by Rommel. Uh, this is Professor Rommel at the University of uh, Hawaii. It's called, it's called Death by Government. And it turns out that this, in, this, in uh, Russia and Soviet Union, uh, they're responsible for 65 million, killing 65 million of their own people, and in China, somewhere around 70 million of their own ch- children. And as a matter of fact, those two countries make Hitler's uh, 18 million look like child's play. Professor, you know, I've always envisioned socialism, which is the warm-up act for communism, kind of like the fairy tale that the evil witch that lives in the woods and she passes out apples that are poisonous to little kids that come by, and then when they pass out, they cram them in the oven, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's an easy sell to the uninformed masses because it sounds good. Everybody's going to be fair. You know, fair is such an important word today. It, you know, we're going to be fair about this. We're going to be equal about this. But it never turns out that way in the actual application of it. And then there's people that I, I think I, I really, they kind of make me mad, really, the way they do this, like Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is a multi, multi millionaire. He has multiple homes. And I'm fine with that. Good for Bernie. But then he turns around and demonizes and wants to change the very system that he used to accomplish that. And I think there's something immoral about that. No oh, that, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and if you look at in a free market system, the way people become very wealthy is by, by pleasing their fellow man. That is, how come Bill Gates is so very, very wealthy? It's not because he went around robbing people. He produced Windows and other software programs that satisfied his fellow man. Henry Ford, uh, uh, Rockefeller, all these people, they did things that, let's say Ford's example, made, made it possible for the common man to be able to own a car. Uh, and you look at uh, these very, very wealthy people who have invented drugs, who save people's lives. And that is, in a free market system, one becomes wealthy by serving their fellow man. And that's the advantage of the free market system, because prior to capitalism, the way that people became very, very wealthy 
was by looting and plundering and enslaving their fellow man. With the rise of capitalism, it became very wealthy by serving your fellow man, doing things to make your fellow man's life more pleasant or more or longer. And so that's the essential difference between capitalism and socialism and other systems that, uh, that, that wear down or deprive people of their personal liberties. Let me ask you about one other product that we always hear a lot about that uh, people of the socialist background always champion, and that is drug prices in Canada. There we go. I have heard this. I have heard this. I have heard this. Doctor uh, Professor Williams, break, break down for us a little bit. Why are drugs cheaper in Canada, and why are they more in the U.S., and what can we do to fix that? Well, in the, in the U.S., in order to get a drug to the market, to get, to get the Food and Drug Administration approval, it, will, it costs at least a billion dollars to get a drug to the market. They have to have all these kind of extensive testing and all this stuff like this. Now, what, what Canada and other countries can do, that is, when, when the United States uh, does, uh, requires that drugs companies do all this testing, well, that takes the, uh, these other countries off the hook. They can just rely on, the, yeah. on what the United States does in terms of testing. They go but, to school on us, basically. That, that's right. And, but, however, it's in, in the, the issue in Canada is far worse. There's, a, there's a, um, a report that comes out every year. It's called Waiting Your Turn. And that is, it's huge waiting time for any kind of uh, procedure in Canada. Matter of fact, it turns out that Cleveland, Ohio, is Canada's hip replacement center. <laughs> <laughs> People who don't want to wait more than a, Canadians who don't want to wait more than a year, they go to Cleveland for hip replacement. If you look at if you look at, at American firms along the border with Canada. You see, they're advertising in Canadian newspapers about uh, how to get an MRI in two days as, as opposed to having to wait three months for it. Uh, and also in Canada and England, other social, wealth, uh, social medicine programs, uh, people, a number of people in England, they, they go blind because of cataracts, uh, uh, cataracts. And at the time that they're do- diagnosed with cataracts, the the cataracts can be removed and they can see, but the, by the time they they have to wait in line for to go to the surgeon, surgeon it's just too late. And same thing with uh, uh, colon cancer. People who are diagnosed with colon cancer uh, they, that is treatable, by the time they get to the specialist to treat them, the it becomes it's untreatable because they have to wait a year, a year and a half. Yeah, I, I actually saw a woman in line, and she had made her way to America, and she was weeping in in the line. We were there to to get our car tags renewed, so we both were miserable, and uh, and she was she was crying because she said, if my husband had made it to America, and had made it to the medical care that's available here, he would still be alive. And she was coming from Canada because of the long waiting list with colon cancer. It, it took his life, and we've seen numbers that we have cities. In America, in states that have more MRI machines than than in the entire country. That's right. Of Phil, Philadelphia is one of them. Philadelphia has more MRI machines than the whole nation of Canada. That's unbelievable. And, and so, what people are missing, if we as Americans, and you've talked about this, I remember the first time I heard you say it. You know, asking the government to fix health care is like 
asking an arsonist to put out a house fire. <laughs> and, 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 and what, and what, we're, what, we're, what people are missing, and I think they're really missing it, and you touched on it when you talked about capitalism, is research and development is a pursuit of investing money for a profit, but it also helps people, as you said, because we produce these life-saving drugs. I've talked to people that are friends of mine, family members that are in the medical industry, and they said, Rick, I'm telling you, if we go to government-run health care, these companies are going to try to return, you know, get a return to their, you know, their, their, their investors. And if research development does not produce a profit, it will go away. And, and, and so we will go backward in, in, into the, the primitive years of health care because there will be no place. We're the last bastion of research and development because of capitalism. You're absolutely right. And one of the big problems in our country right now is that there's too much government involvement in medicine. That is, over 50% of medical expenditures are made by government. And so, and, and it's growing. And that when government gets involved with something, it, it, the outcome is not necessarily good. Professor, you alluded to it earlier, and I wanted to expand on it briefly here, and we'll kind of wrap up with this. Um, I think conservatives and conservative values made a return to the main stage with Ronald Reagan during that run, and we've seen you know, it have some success, uh, especially in the media. The media used to be pretty much totally held by the liberals. We do have some outlets now that at least battle a little bit to get the word out about things. But one place I think that conservative values and education has failed is in our education system, mm. which is totally run and uh, controlled by the far-left liberal mindset. Even though we have a lot of great classroom teachers, they're not in control of what they're doing or teaching. How do, how do we turn the tide on education in this country? If you were put in charge of that plan, that battle plan, how would we implement that? Well, you know, there, there's, there's one thing that's very good, that would be very good for education, and that is many college administrators, people who administrate the, uh, the, uh, to run these colleges, they have closed minds. And there's nothing better to open the closed mind than the sounds of pocketbooks snapping shut. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, what, and what we need to do is... Americans are very generous about giving to colleges and giving to all kinds of educational institutions, and and they, and they don't know they don't know what the uh, and they don't they, it's kind of reckless giving, that is they just give a uh, hundred thousand million et cetera et cetera, and just tell the college to do you know just do what you want with it, and I think what what people need to do is to uh, be involved with more get more. Uh, knowledge about what's going on in colleges and what's going on in many colleges is just absolutely fraud. Uh, my my daughter's uh, uh, best friend she went to Harvard University, and she did not get a professor teaching a course until she was at the end of her sophomore year. And but however, when these schools go around to let's say the admissions offices, when they go around to various high schools. And, and give lectures to parents about their colleges, they talk about who won the Nobel Prize, who won the science, their, uh, some of their faculty won the science award. 
And and so the parents have an expectation. Oh my goodness, my kid's going to be exposed to these people. But no, it's it's bait and switch. Uh, they have uh, te- uh, teaching associates uh, or adjunct or or graduate students teaching courses, and these uh, highly paid uh, uh, professionals who've done very very well. They they're not down to teaching the undergraduate level or teaching graduate school, if at all. So you're saying we we must be wiser with with our giving, and if we close the pocketbook and fold up the wallet and demand that certain things change or we will not be continuing to give, they will strangely adapt to that because right now they're getting away with doing anything they want to and they still get the money. That that is absolutely right. That is what we have to do is introduce accountability. And keep in mind that many of the administrators today – and many of the professors today, they were the hippies on college campuses back in the 60s and 70s. So what we have, we have, we have people who have utter disregard for private property and individual liberty and freedom of speech. We have them in control of a, on a lot of campuses uh, in our country. And one of the rather remarkable, disgusting things is the relative contempt that's held for free speech on many college campuses. They even have speech codes. When, when they Shocking. promote when yeah. they promote that they're supposed to be a place of ideas. The arena. The marketplace The of arena ideas. of ideas. As long as you agree with them. As long as you agree with <laughs> us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Williams, we, I mean, sorry, Professor Williams, we thank you for being with us. It's been a, a while since we chatted. I love this podcast format because we don't get interrupted by, you know, so many breaks, and then we come back. It's kind of a long-form conversation and as always uh, you have been very very enlightening and i hope that people are hearing what you're saying because uh, these are these are just economic truths they really are well well thank you for inviting me and and for for the listeners they can just go to my website walterwilliams.com and there's many many of my publications there well and, and and it is invaluable so use these resources educate yourself educate your children because in most cases if you're sending them to a government school you're going to need to know some things to deprogram them. Professor Williams, thank you so much, and I hope we get a chance to do this again soon. Okay, and thank you. Good luck on your your, uh, podcast. Thank you very much. Rick and Bubba University, Episode 7 is in the bag. Thank you so much for being with us.